Chapter 1 of Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nathan Fair. Tales from Ariosto by Joseph Shield Nicholson. Chapter 1. Prologue. The Coming of Angelica. Such forces met not, nor so wide a camp, when Agrican, with all his northern powers, besieged Albraca, as romances tell, the city of Gallifrone, from whence to win the fairest of her sex, Angelica, his daughter, sought by many prowest knights both Paynim and the peers of Charlemagne. Such and so numerous was their chivalry. Milton, Paradise Regained, Book Three, Lines 337-344 to the coming of Angelica was ushered in by events which were destined to send their influences from Europe to Cathay, and back again to Africa and the uttermost isles of the seas, beyond fabulous Ireland. And for a long time the central personage in these wars and adventures was Angelica. Charlemagne, king of France and Roman emperor, was the leader of Europe against the assaults of the Saracens, of the followers of Christ against the followers of Mahomet. But unlike later wars of religion, this prolonged contest between the Christians and pagans was carried on for the most part, so far as the leaders were concerned, and in the histories little account is taken of the common people, in accordance with the unwritten laws of the courtesies and of chivalry. Occasionally, no doubt, the Saracens, and the term was extended to all non-Christians, did not quite attain to the high standard of the Christian knights. But, in general, the relations of the combatants were ruled by courtesy. Charlemagne himself, in one period of peace, had taken to wife Gallarena, the sister of Marsilio, the Moorish king of Spain. And in the peaceful interludes of the Great War it became the custom for the Christians and Saracens to meet together and show their prowess in jousts and tournaments. On one of these occasions Charlemagne had invited the cavaliers of both armies to a great feast and tournament in Paris and to add to the joyousness of the festival, the noblest and the fairest ladies who were within reach of the trumpets of fame were invited or commanded to appear, and, little knowing what would be the culmination, they answered the summons in full panoply. They did not anticipate the coming of Angelica. The air resounded with martial music and the ringing of bells, and great war-horses in trappings of gold and jewels showed that their masters had spent more than their utmost, as the saying is, in magnificent and unheard-of display. At the banquet on the opening day there were assembled, according to the true history of Archbishop Turpin, twenty-two thousand and thirty guests. King Charles the Great, with joyous countenance, sat in the midst of his paladins on a seat of gold at the great round table. In front of him were the Saracen kings, who, according to their custom, and despising the custom of France, reclined on rich carpets, like mastiffs, as the chronicler has it. To the right and the left of the round table were the crowned heads of Christendom, English, German, Lombard, Danish, and others. And next, in order, were the dukes and marquesses, and in the third rank the counts and cavaliers, all arranged in order of their dignities, according to the nicest rules of precedence. But Gano and the rest of the Maganzese, who were destined to be the great betrayers, received more than their due of honor, and Rinaldo, who was too poor to make much display, received somewhat less, and in his heart he bitterly reviled his hereditary enemies. 
In due time, the joyous laughter and conversing of the guests was broken by the blare of trumpets, and there were brought in large dishes of gold laden with the most delicate viands. And to every noble the king sent a present of a golden cup or other treasure, finely worked, to keep in memory of him and the festival. And Charlemagne, when he looked round and saw himself supported by so many kings and dukes and valiant cavaliers, began to hold the Saracens as light as sand driven before the wind. Now there were at the banquet many great ladies, ennobled by name and more ennobled by beauty, Galarena and Alda and Clarice and Armelina, and others of renown, every one a fountain of honor, and the knights were showing them all courtesy and whispering their devotion, and none could have imagined that the chief guest was yet to come, and to come uninvited. Suddenly, at the lower end of the great banqueting hall, there appeared four huge giants of very fierce aspect. And in the midst of the giants was a youthful lady followed by a single cavalier, and her beauty was like the beauty of the lily, or the rose, or the morning star, or, to tell truth, her beauty was beyond expression in similitudes, and never in the world was seen such beauty. And the beauty of the lady on the instant enchanted the eyes of the beholders so that they could see nothing else. Christians and Saracens sprang to their feet, and their feet followed their looks as if drawn by enchantment, and they left their own ladies disconsolate and swarmed about the uninvited guest. And the lady, with joyous countenance and a laugh to fill with love a heart of stone, advanced to Charlemagne, and in a sweet, low voice addressed him in French with a delicious undertone of the Arabian accent. And the great Roman emperor looked from her golden hair into the blackness of her eyes, and wondered and worshipped and vowed nothing created could be more lovely. Now this was the story told by Angelica to Charlemagne, and it was passed from mouth to mouth for many ages, until it was made immortal in the verses of Boyardo. "'Great-hearted lord,' she began, "'your valour and the prowess of your paladins are known over all lands, even to the bounds of the ocean. And your glory gives me hope that the long fatigues of two wanderers from the ends of the earth, who have come to do honour to your joyous estate, will not be in vain, and that you may hear the reason of our coming.' Know that this knight is Uberto of the Lion, of gentle blood and high renown, and he has been unrightfully driven from his kingdom. I, too, was driven out with him, and I am his sister, and my name is Angelica. Upon the Tanais where we dwelt, two hundred days' journey from hence, news was brought to us of this tournament and of the great gathering of noble cavaliers who were assembled, and how that for the prize of valour there was to be given to the victor neither the rule of a city, nor gems, nor treasure, but only a crown of roses. And my brother has determined to show his valour in this assembly of the flower of chivalry, man to man, against you all in turn, whether Christian or pagan. And he will await all comers in the green meadow at the fountain where the great pine overshadows the Perrin of Merlin. Footnote. The Perrins, which are constantly spoken of in the old romances, were massive blocks of stone with steps placed by the roadside or in forests to enable the knights in their heavy armour to mount or dismount. On these Perrins, Knights-errant would hang their shields to defy all comers. The parent was sheltered by a tree, usually an elm. End footnote. Now the conditions of the combat are these. Whoever is unhorsed shall in no wise renew the fight in any manner, but without more ado shall yield himself prisoner to my brother. But if Uberto is unhorsed, he shall depart free with his giants, and the victor shall have... me... And at the end of her words she knelt down before Charlemagne and awaited his reply. And every man, Christian or Saracen, looked upon her with wonder. And most of all Orlando was overpowered by her beauty, 
and he drew near with trembling heart and changed countenance, but with eyes downcast as if he were ashamed of this sudden love. Now, according to the chroniclers, up to the time he saw Angelica, Orlando had never loved a maiden with passion, and he was accounted blameless and pure as a saint. But from that moment the love for Angelica overmastered every other impulse, and as the story tells, he forgot for this love the claims of chivalry and of his emperor, and he forgot his kindred and his vows to God, until by the eternal justice he was plunged in madness, and thereafter by the eternal mercy restored to forgetfulness and reason. And even in the beginning, when he saw her kneeling before Charles, he foresaw the greatness of his error and of his sin against God. But the more he communed with his heart, the stronger grew his passion, till it seemed that without Angelica he could not live. And as it was with Orlando, so it was with the rest of the assembled knights. Even Namus, the old Duke of Bavaria, in spite of his years and grey wisdom, fell in love with her quite simply. And Ferrau, the young black-haired Saracen, was so transported by passion that but for his respect for imperial host, he would have snatched up the maiden and carried her off in spite of her giants. And Charlemagne himself was dazzled by her beauty, and in answer to her prayer talked to her of this and that to keep her in his sight. But at last, for very shame, he could withhold his answer no longer, and he swore by the Gospels to grant her every request. And with her brother and the giants she departed. The paladin second only to Orlando in renown was his cousin Rinaldo, the lord of Montalbano, and like the rest of the knights he also was seized with sudden love of Angelica. And in his case, as the story tells, his love was subjected to great and sudden changes of fortune, for soon after the beginning it was turned into bitter hatred, and then again into most ardent desire, and in the end was again changed into cold disdain. And these extraordinary transformations were wrought by wonderful means, as the story will tell. Now this Rinaldo had a cousin named Malagigi, or some have it Malagis, and in those days there were still on the earth those who had the power of divination, and who by the aid of spells written in books of magic could summon spirits from the depths. Malagigi was a master of this magical lore, and as soon as Angelica told her story to Charlemagne, he began to suspect it was false, and as soon as she had left the banqueting hall, he searched his book and summoned to his aid four spirits, and from them he learned that a plot was laid for the death of Charlemagne and the destruction of his court. Angelica, he found, was the daughter of Gallifrone, king of Cathay, and she was herself full of guile and versed in sorcery and magic. And she had been sent to the heart of Christendom by the evil old man, her father, together with her brother, whose real name was Argalia, and not Uberto, to bring about the ruin of the Christians. And to the youth he had given a horse black as charcoal, and in fleetness of foot quicker than the wind, Rabican by name and he had gifted him also with impenetrable armor and an enchanted sword. But above everything his most precious gift was a golden lance wrought with the finest craft. And the virtue of the lance was so great that with the slightest touch it sent to earth the strongest warrior. With these arms he deemed his son would be invincible, and yet beyond the horse and arms he gave him a ring of the greatest and most incredible virtue, for if put in the left side of the mouth it made the holder invisible, and when worn on the finger was a protection against the strongest enchantment. But in carrying out the plot against the Christian powers he relied most of all on his daughter Angelica, for the sight of her natural beauty was such that it drew all men to love, 
and he planned that night after night should be ensnared to joust for her as the prize, and being overthrown by the golden lance, should be taken prisoner and sent to Cathay. By the aid of his divination, Malagigi discovered that Angelica had told in her story the things that never had been, and never would be, if her purpose held good. For nothing was further from the thoughts of Angelica than that she should be the prize in any tourney, and when she smiled so pleasantly on the emperor and his kings and his knights, her thoughts were very different from their thoughts. And instead of being a whirlpool in devouring the loves of men, Angelica was a maiden of most disdainful and difficult virtue, although by no means stupidly good. And when she offered herself as a prize, she had the courage born of knowledge hidden from others, and played with a light heart in the plot designed by her father. Now when all these things were revealed to Malagigi, it seemed to him that the simplest way out of the difficulty was to kill Angelica. No sooner was the thought imagined than by the aid of his spirits he transported himself to the pavilion of Argalia, a work of most beautiful art which had been set up in the meadow near the Perrin of Merlin. And beneath the great pine near the fountain Angelica was sleeping, with her golden hair pillowed on the flowered grass and guarded by her four giants. And sleeping, she seemed a thing more than human, a creature from some other world, and on her finger she wore the ring which her brother had given her for her protection. Malagigi saw the maiden asleep on the flowery bank and near by the giants, all four very fierce and wakeful. But Malagigi read out of his book the proper spell and down they sank in slumber. Then he drew his sword and stepped up to the sleeping princess with the design to put her instantly to death. But even as he raised his sword, the fatal beauty of Angelica pierced his senses. He let fall the weapon, and thinking that Angelica, like her giants, was under his spells, he seized her in his arms. But the ring took all power from his enchantment, and on the instant Angelica awoke and shrieked for help. Argalia rushed unarmed from the tent and could not believe his eyes when he saw his sister in the arms of a Christian. He quickly seized a cudgel from one of the sleeping giants, but Angelica, with the more nimble wit, showed him the better way of vengeance. She cried to him, Bind him, brother, before I let him go, for he is in the power of the ring. And Argalia tried to waken his giants, but they were fast under the spell, and he took a chain and with great trouble wound it about the arms and the legs and the shoulders and neck of Malagigi, so that from head to foot he was enchained. And when Angelica saw he was safely bound, she seized his book of spells, and having in her infancy learned to read this kind of writing, in an instant the air was filled with spirits from the earth and the sea and the sky, and they all asked her will. She bade them take up their old master and convey him to her father, King Galifron, with the message that she had sent to him the only enemy they had to fear. And whilst Angelica was arousing her giants, Malagigi was transported by the joyful spirits to Cathay, and there left lamenting at the bottom of a dungeon under the floor of the ocean. Thus was the way prepared for the jousting with Argalia for the prize of his fair sister. But in the meantime a great dispute had arisen amongst the assembled knights for the first place in the tilting with Uberto. Orlando, though he was always the first in danger or duty, and by universal assent was the most famous of warriors, Christian or Saracen, in the matter of rewards and honor always made light of his claims, but now such was his passion that he insisted on his right to the first place, and so great was the desire of the others that none would give way, and the banquet threatened to become a battle, until at last the tumult was stilled by an agreement to appeal to chance. 
The names of the suitors were written out by the Archbishop Turpin, who vowed he was unmoved, and to prove his word, in his history of Charlemagne he never mentioned Angelica. And all the names, Christian and Saracen, were cast into a golden urn, and the knights were to joust in the order in which their names were drawn out by a little boy. And the first to be drawn was Astolfo, son of the King of England, and the next the Spanish Moor, the swarthy Ferrau, the third Rinaldo, Charles himself was eighth, and thirty names were drawn before, to his great chagrin, there came that of Orlando. Astolfo of England had no equal in beauty, very rich he was in wealth, but richer in courtesy, most graceful in attire and manner. In prowess he was not so famous. Many times he was unhorsed, but he always blamed his ill fortune, and, gay and fearless, rode again to a fall. His armor was most splendid and worth a great treasure. The shield was studded round with large pearls, the mail was all golden, and the helm was of measureless value with a jewel set in the midst of it, a ruby as big as a walnut, if the book of Turpin is to be believed. His surcoat was embroidered with leopards all of fine gold. Though the knight was coming near, fearing nothing, he set out, and when he reached the perron of Merlin, he loudly sounded his horn. Argalia quickly armed himself cap a pie with a white surcoat, and in his hand he bore the golden lance that none could withstand. Courteously the knights saluted and renewed the pact of the jousting with Angelica for witness. Then, having ridden apart the distance of half a bow-shot, they turned and charged, and on the instant Astolfo was stretched on the sand and was again blaming his ill fortune for the loss of the beautiful lady. The giants took him up and carried him to the pavilion, and when he was disarmed he was so pleasing in look and manner that Angelica had pity on him, and treated him with all the courtesy possible to a prisoner. End of chapter 1